0: Chapter nine of the four faces by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter nine. The Snare. Dick's face bore a broad grin as he entered the room. He looked dreadfully mischievous. Assuming as serious an expression as I could conjure, I said to him, Why, what's the meaning of this, Dick? How do you come to be in town? Are you with Aunt Hannah? "'It's all right, brother-in-law,' he answered lightly. "'No, I am not with Aunt Hannah, nor is Aunt Hannah with me. I have come up on my own.' "'On your own? What do you mean?' "'I'll tell you, but won't you introduce me, Mike?' "'Easterton,' I said. "'This is Roland Challoner's boy Dick. Jack, this is the boy I told you about who was chloroformed by the thieves at Holt.' Jack's eyes rested on Dick. Then he put out his hand. "'Come here, old chap.' he said in his deep voice. For several moments he held Dick's hand in his while he sat looking at him. "'Yes,' he said at last, "'I have heard about you, Dick. I heard about what you did that day those men caught you. Keep that spirit up, my boy. Your family has never lacked pluck, if history is to be trusted, and you'll become one of the kind of men England so badly needs. What are you doing in London? Is your father with you?' "'No, I have come up on my own,' Dick repeated. I am going to tell Mike why in a moment. Are you Mr. Jack Osborne that Mike is always talking to my sister about? Who took Mike to that house, the house where the fire was? Yes, I am, Jack answered laughing. Why? Oh, because my sister didn't like your taking Mike there, you know. She didn't like it a bit. She and Mike are going to be married, you know, and Mike is going to be my brother-in-law. I pounced upon him to make him be quiet, though Easterton and Osborne clamoured that he should be left alone and allowed to say anything he liked, Jack declaring that he wanted to hear more this romance. At last we all became serious, and then Dick said, "'I made a discovery this morning at Holt. There is someone hidden in the old hiding-hole close to my father's bedroom.' "'Hidden in it?' I exclaimed. "'Oh, nonsense!' Your telegram to Dulcie arrived at about half-past ten this morning, he went on, not heeding my remark, and she and Aunt Hannah at once got ready to go to town. I know what was in the telegram, because Dulcie told me. About an hour after they were gone I happened to go up to my father's bedroom to fetch something, and when I came out again I noticed an odd sound. At first I couldn't think where it came from. It was like someone breathing very heavily, someone asleep. I stood quite still, and soon I found that it came from the priest's hiding-hole. You know it, you have seen it. I went over on tiptoe, got into the angle where the opening to the hole is, and pressed my ear down on the sliding-board. I could hear the sound quite well then, somebody breathing awfully heavily. First I thought of sliding back the board and peeping in. Then I decided I wouldn't do that until I'd got somebody else with me. I noticed that the sliding-board was unbolted there is a little bolt on the side of it, you know. So I very quietly pushed forward the bolt, and then went downstairs to look for James or Charles. That's the butler and the footman, you know," he said to Jack. Cook told me they had both gone into Newbury for the day, and of course Father chauffeur was out with the car. He had taken Aunt Hannah and Dulcie to Holt Stacy to catch the train to London, and I knew that he would take a day off too, because he always does when he gets the chance." father isn't expected back until tonight, So then I went to try to find Churchill or one of the other gardeners, goodness knows where they were hiding themselves. Anyway, I couldn't find them, nor could I find either of the keepers. In fact, I seemed to be the only man on the place. "'Well, go on,' I said, as he paused. "'You were the only man on the place. What did the only man do then?' "'I'll tell you if you'll wait a moment.' "'My brother-in-law is always so beastly impatient,' he said, turning again to Jack. "'Don't you find him like that, Mr. Osborne?' "'I do, always. But go on, old boy, I'm very interested.' "'And so am I,' Easterton laughed. "'Of course it was no use telling Cook or the maids. They'd have got what Cook calls styrics or something. So then it suddenly struck me the best thing for me to do would be to come right up to town and find Aunt Hannah and tell her. I knew where she'd be, because you'd said in your telegram, 430 Grafton Street. I didn't know where Grafton Street was, but I thought I could find out. I borrowed money from Cook for the railway ticket, though I didn't tell her what I wanted it for, or she wouldn't have given it to me. And directly after lunch I bicycled to hold Stacy station and caught the train. I got to Grafton Street all right by a bus down Bond Street. There was a policeman standing near the house in Grafton Street and when I rang the bell he came up and asked me what I wanted. I told him and he said he thought I'd find the two ladies I wanted at the Ritz Hotel. I knew where that was, and he showed me the way to get to it down Dover Street. Of course, if I'd had money I'd have taken taxis and got about much quicker. A giant in livery at the Ritz Hotel told me that two ladies answering to the description of the ladies I sought had left the hotel about a quarter of an hour before I got there, and he didn't know where they had gone then i went to brooks's to see if you were there but you weren't though they said you'd been there that put the lid on it i didn't know what to do and i'd only got tenpence pence a penny left i was awfully hungry so i went and had tea and buns at the a b c shop at piccadilly circus while i was having tea i remembered hearing you tell dulcie that mr osborne lived at the russell hotel i'd have telephoned to mr osborne and explained who I was, and asked him if he could tell me where I could find you, and I'd have telephoned too to your flat in South Moulton Street to ask if you were there, but I've got only five-pence-halfpenny left after tea, and you might both have been out, and then I've have had only a penny-halfpenny, and Paddington seemed an awfully long way to walk to, and I wasn't quite sure of the way, so I'd have had to keep asking, and that's such a bore, isn't it? so after the tea I got on to the tube and came here and asked for Mr. Osborne. The man downstairs told me two gentlemen were with him, and I asked him what they were like. He told me as well as he could, and I guessed from the description one of them must be you. And then, just after the messenger had come up to ask if it was you and to tell you I was there, another hotel man turned up downstairs, and I talked to him. And he said he knew a Mr. Barrington was with Mr. Osborne because he, the man, had telephoned up your name a little while before and mr osborne had said to show you up and so here i am and that's all he stopped abruptly breathless after his long talk which had been delivered without an instant's pause for your age you seem fairly intelligent jack said with a look of amusement yes fairly dick retorted but my brother-in-law says that when he was my age the world was a much better and finer place that the boys did wonderful things when he was my age. He says, for instance, that he talked Latin and Greek and German and French and one or two other languages, just as you talk English, Mr. Osborne, when he was my age. Funny how he has forgotten them all, isn't it? My sister told me only yesterday that Mike talks French fluently, but that his German leaves much to be desired. Those were her words. "'Were all the boys wonderful when you were my age, too, Mr. Osborne? Can you remember?' Another thing Mike says is that when he was my age all boys were taught to swim by being taken to the ends of piers and flung into the sea. Mike says he was taught like that just as the rest were, and that he jolly well had to swim or he'd have been drowned, which seems pretty obvious, doesn't it, when you come to think of it. When did the fashion of teaching boys to swim like that go out, Mr. Osborne? I'm jolly glad it has gone out. When I had succeeded in checking Dick's flow of talk, and quelling his high spirits, and had questioned him further with regard to the man he declared to be in hiding at Holt, though without my being able to obtain from him any further information, I turned to Jack. "'What do you make of it?' I said. "'What do you suggest ought to be done?' "'I think,' he answered after a moment's pause, "'that it affords an excellent excuse for you to run down to Holt tonight." "'Oh, good!' Dick exclaimed, jumping with excitement. "'and there's a train at a quarter to seven that we can catch. "'It gets to Holt Stacy at five minutes to eight. "'Jack glanced up at the clock. "'In three quarters of an hour's time,' he said. "'That will suit you, Mike, and you'll be glad, I know, "'of the excuse to go down to Holt to see the flowers and—and things. "'Don't think, I suppose, for a moment that you want to see either Dulcie Challoner or the old lady you call Aunt Hannah. "'But still, if you should see them—and, of course, you will—' "'Oh, he'll see them right enough,' Dick burst out, "'especially my sister. There aren't any flies on my brother-in-law, you bet.' I boxed Dick's ears, but he didn't seem to mind. Perhaps I didn't box them very hard, for instead of howling as he ought to have done, he looked up at me sharply and exclaimed, "'Then you're coming down to Holt now? Hooray! We'll go down together. How ripping! I'll telephone to say you're coming, and say to get your room ready.' And he sprang across the room to the instrument by the bedside i stopped him gripping him by the shoulder though not before he had pulled off the receiver and called through to the operator trunks please you'll do nothing of the sort i said and look here dick you are in mr osborne's rooms and not in your own playroom so don't forget it i felt greatly preoccupied as the train sped down to berkshire anxious too about many things not the least of these being how i should be received Would Sir Roland have returned? Would Aunt Hannah have told him everything? If so, would he have adopted her view with regard to the sending of that telegram, and with regard to other matters? And Dulcie, would she at last have come to think as Aunt Hannah thought? I could not believe she would have, but still, as I have said, women are so extraordinary that there is no knowing what they may not do, no accounting for what they may do. "'Knowing there would be no conveyance obtainable at Holt Stacy, I had decided to go on to Newbury. "'On alighting at Newbury I suddenly heard Dick's shrill voice calling, "'Why, Mike, there's Father!' "'Sir Roland had just got out of a compartment further up the train, "'and soon we were in conversation. "'He, too, had come from London, but whereas Dick and I had only just caught the train, "'Sir Roland had, he said, entered it as soon as it came into the station,' which accounted for our not having seen him at Paddington. As we walked along the Newbury platform I explained to him very briefly the reason I had come down, and how it was I had Dick with me, inwardly congratulating myself upon my good fortune in thus meeting Sir Roland, and so being able to explain everything to him concerning what had happened that day, before he should meet his sister, and hear what she would tell him. "'It was only at the last moment I decided to come by this train,' Sir Roland said as he entered the taxi that a porter had hailed, and I followed him while Dick hopped in after us. "'How tiresome it is one can't get a conveyance at Holt Stacy. People are forever complaining to me about it. As I have not telegraphed for the car to meet me, I had to come on to Newbury.' "'I came to Newbury for the same reason,' I said. And then, as the taxi rolled swiftly along the dark lanes, for we had a twelve miles run before us, I gave Sir Roland a detailed account of all that had happened that day, from the time Easterton had rung me up at my flat to tell me of Jack Osborne's disappearance, and to ask me to come to him at once, down to the sudden and unexpected arrival of Dick at Jack's rooms at the Russell Hotel. Sir Roland was astounded, and a good deal perturbed. Several times during the course of my narrative, he had interrupted in order to put some question or other to Dick. At first he had reproved him for going to London on what Dick called his own, but when I told him more he admitted that what the boy had done he had done probably for the best. "'Oh, I haven't told you one thing,' Dick suddenly interrupted. "'Well, what?' Sir Roland asked. "'When I was on my way to hold Stacy this morning, Mrs. Stapleton passed me in her car. I was on that part of the road, about a mile from the lodge, "'where if you look round you can see a long bit of the avenue.' "'I wondered if Mrs. Stapleton were going to halt by any chance, "'so I bicycled rather slowly for a minute or two "'and looked round once or twice. "'I had guessed right, because all at once I saw her car going up the avenue. "'Are you sure it was Mrs. Stapleton?' "'I asked, suddenly interested. "'Oh, quite, but I don't think she saw me. "'Her car went by so fast. "'Was anybody with her?' "'No, she was alone.' The chauffeur was driving, and the car that went up the drive. Are you sure it was the same?' "'Positive. That long gray car of hers, I'd know it anywhere. You can recognize it ever so far away.' We were half a mile from the lodge now. Soon we had shot through the open gates and were sliding up the splendid avenue. I felt intensely excited, also happier than when in the train, for I knew I now possessed Sir Roland's entire confidence.' Delicious was it to think that in a few minutes I should see Dulcie again, but what excited me, and I knew it must be exciting Sir Roland too, was the thought of that man, or would it prove to be a woman, lying concealed in the hiding-hole? Who could it be? How long had he been there? How had he got there? And what could he be doing? I had told Sir Roland of the false conclusion Aunt Hannah had come to, with regard to the sending of that typed telegram and how bitterly she had spoken to me about it i had thought it best to prepare him for the absurd story that i felt sure aunt hannah would proceed to pour into his ear directly she met him to my relief he had laughed appearing to treat the matter of her annoyance and suspicion as a joke though the sending of the telegram he looked upon naturally as a very grave matter consequently upon our arrival at holt instead of inquiring for his sister and at once consulting her upon the subject of the day's events, as he would, I knew, have done under ordinary circumstances, he told Charles the footman to send the butler to him at once, and to return with him. We were now in the little library, Sir Roland and myself, Dick, the butler, and the footman, and the door was shut. Without any preliminaries, Sir Roland came straight to the point. He told the two servants of Dick's discovery that morning, told them that presumably the man was still in hiding where dick had bolted him down and that the four of us were at once going as he put it to unearth the scoundrel and you will stay here dick sir roland added we shall not need your services at this juncture dick was i could see deeply disappointed at as he put it to me in an undertone being sidetracked like this by the governor when it was i who marked the beggar to ground but his father's word was law and he knew it. Never mind, my dear old chap, I said, as I noticed a slight quiver of the upper lip. Directly we've unearthed him and got him safely bagged. I'll come and tell you what he looks like and all about him. You see, your father doesn't want to run unnecessary risks. You're the only boy he's got, and this man may be armed. You would be annoyed if the fellow were to make holes in you, and I should be vexed too, greatly vexed." Dick laughed at that, and when a minute later we left him he was happier in his mind no sound was audible as we stood above the priest's hole listening intently this hiding-place was oddly situated and ingeniously constructed in an angle formed by two walls with old oak wainscoting was a sliding floor in reality it was a single board but it was made to resemble so exactly several boards set parallel and horizontally that none could believe it to be a single board unless they were shown. Immediately beneath was a room or closet, not much bigger than a very large cupboard, which could accommodate three men standing or two seated. In olden days this sliding board was covered with tapestry, and being made in such a way that, when stamped upon or struck, no hollow sound was emitted, it formed a safe place of concealment for any outlawed person for whom the emissaries of the law might be in search. To this day the board slides away into the wall as sweetly as it did in the days of the Reformation. But Sir Roland, owing to an accident having once occurred through someone leaving the hole uncovered, had affixed a small bolt to the board and given orders that this bolt should always be kept pushed into its socket. When we had all stood listening for fully a minute, Sir Roland said suddenly, Charles, draw the bolt and slide back the board. Get back, James, he exclaimed sharply to the butler who, in his anxiety to see what would be revealed, was bending forward. Do you want to be shot? Whoever the man may be, he is pretty sure to be armed. An instant later the board had vanished into the wall, and Sir Roland stood peering down, exactly as he had warned his butler not to do. By Jove! he exclaimed. Casting prudence aside, we all pressed forward and looked down into the hole. Huddled in a heap at the bottom was a man in hunting kit, white breeches, top boots, and pink coat. Sitting along the floor he was bent almost double so that we could not see his face. "'Hello!' Sir Roland called out. "'Who are you? What are you doing there?' But the figure didn't move. At one end of the hiding-hole a ladder was nailed vertically. The feet of the man touched its lowest rung. Turning, Sir Roland began carefully to descend. "'Let me, sir!' the butler exclaimed excitedly. "'Let me! It's not safe!' he may attack you, sir. Without answering, Sir Roland continued to clamber down. Now he stood upon the floor of the hiding-hole at the foot of the figure. We saw him stoop, raise the man's head, and bend the body upward until the back rested against the other end of the hole. An exclamation escaped us simultaneously. The face was that of a man of twenty-seven or so, though the stubbly beard and moustache, apparently a week's growth or more, at first gave the idea that he was much older. The eyes were closed and sunken, the mouth gaped, the face was deathly pale and terribly emaciated. My gad, gasped Sir Roland as he took hold of the wrist and felt for the pulse. My gad, I think he's dead End of chapter nine. Recording by Tom Weiss audiobooks dot com